0: Hey everybody, this is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns Podcast. In our ongoing kind of series of looking back at some of the best podcasts that we've done, I don't think we would be uh, doing ourselves much of a favor if we didn't start with these Nassim Taleb podcasts. Uh, I I have been deeply influenced by the work of Nassim Taleb. And uh, the next two weeks, we're going to share with you a two-part series I did. That looked at uh, it was it was after he had published his book *Antifragile*, uh, he was going around giving some talks as part of the book tour, and one of the speeches that he gave was this speech about cities and development called "Small Is Beautiful," and it was so deep, it was so insightful, but in Taleb's kind of way, it was also so convoluted uh, that it was hard to uh, to just you know share the video with people and say watch this. So what I did is I tried to give an interpretation of it. I tried to walk people through, uh, here's what's going on. I'm not going to spend a lot of time introducing it. There is a faux pas in the second part, and I think I'll talk about that next week when I give you an introduction on that one. But for now, let's get into this, the anti-fragile city. Part one, Uh, here's uh, some talk about Nassim Taleb. Take care, everybody real estate in paris when
1: i was writing antifragile and i was completely ignorant of these things and i wondered where was the expensive real estate <laughs> and the expensive real estate turned out to be in neighborhoods that were villagey in looking you see and and then and then where you effectively had some kind of uh, life all right and you can look at it in terms of dimensionality namely the 5th 6th in paris uh, the marais for example and all these areas that were completely spared by modernity, you see, sure. it tells you that we were on a process before modernity of building neighborhoods in a certain
0: way. You're listening to The Strong Towns Podcast. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. This week, we're going to talk a little Nassim Taleb. I put that quote at the beginning because I think it's just a beautiful quote, even though in Nassim Taleb's incoherent kind of way, he makes a roundabout point. I love Nassim Taleb. Over break, I was able to catch up on a little bit of video stuff that has been posted with him that I hadn't been able to watch before. I try to flag and watch every single Nassim Taleb video that is posted to YouTube and listen to every interview that I can get my hands on of him. I've called him the patron saint of Strong Towns, thinking if there's one person alive today... That has influenced me and my thinking more than any other. It is Nicholas Nassim Taleb. In case you don't know Nassim Taleb, he is the author of a number of amazing books. Fooled by Randomness was his first. I recommend skipping that if you haven't read his stuff before and going right to The Black Swan. It kind of builds on the ideas contained in Fooled by Randomness. He would say that Anti-Fragile, his third book, is the book that It's kind of a synthesis of both of the first two, and that you should read that one. But I actually found Black Swan to be the one that just struck me the the most. The problem with Nassim Taleb is that he doesn't speak in coherent sentences. Now, granted, English is not his first language, and he is rather an intellectual, so there's a lot of thoughts banging around in there. When I heard this elegant quote, which is at the end of this hour and change long video, I really wanted to share it with you. And I wanted to provide, particularly for those people that haven't listened to some of the old podcasts, where there was maybe a lot more Nassim in them than there's been over the last 12 to 18 months. I wanted to give you, to start the year off, a little bit of refresher on some of this basic strong towns theoretical stuff that influences me so much. But deciphering Nassim Taleb in this new video is really a task, and I'm going to give you an example of that to start off. Here is a quote just to give you a little taste of how nothing you get from Nassim Taleb is going to be very easy to decipher. Which is, fragile is what doesn't like disorder,
1: simple, okay? In other words, if there's a random event hitting an earthquake in New York. I think, yeah, earthquakes are not... Cities are not good with earthquakes. It's one disadvantage. Well, this coffee cup doesn't have any upside. So, uh, events are either neutral or negative for these things. And we can define fragility based on that. And then we're going to see what doesn't like fragility, why it doesn't like a lot of other things like time and and,
0: and so on. I feel a little bit like there's a Shakespeare kind of element to this. And not that... (laughs) Okay, here's what I mean by that. You can read Shakespeare... I am not any type of scholar on Shakespeare but I've I've read a little bit I need to have like a guidebook, someone walking me through this, someone who is immersed in Shakespeare to explain this stuff to me, because you can read it and it's clearly English. There's clearly some deep thoughts going on here, but y- you can't make sense of it if you're not used to the way that Shakespeare writes and the way that Shakespeare presents things. I kind of think Nassim Taleb is the same way. You know, In that quote there, he starts out with, what's fragile doesn't like disorder. Okay, that's a brilliant insight. And you can think about, you know, sit and meditate about that insight for a long time, and it will get you to many, many places. But if you sit and listen to Nassim, he starts with, you know, what's fragile doesn't like disorder. Pretty soon he's talking about earthquakes, cities, coffee cups. (laughs) he goes off on all these kind of crazy tangents mentally, and it's tough to get the nuggets of good stuff out of there. I'm going to take this podcast, and we might not finish up in this podcast. I might actually go into the next one and dissect this particular video and give you some of the nuggets out of it. Because this one was about city-states. I mean, the title of it is Small is Beautiful, which, you know, for many of you is going to ring some bells in the Schumacher genre. But he gets into it from his uh, statistical standpoint, the whole fooled by randomness standpoint, and the anti-fragileness. And he talks about small places, iterative process, and so many of the things that influence us here at Strong Towns. So I want to go through some of these things and give you the Nassim, and then try to bring it back to Strong Towns and the cities and the conversations that we're having, because I feel like... These are the most important insights of our day, and certainly the most important insights that are driving the Strong Towns movement. So here is Nassim talking about the opposite of fragile, and why anti-fragile as a concept is different than resiliency.
1: That's the opposite of fragile. When you ask people what's the opposite of fragile, they say robust. Robust isn't quite the opposite of fragile. Because if you ask people, even here at NYU, even in the economics department, what's the opposite of negative, they don't say uh, neutral, or the opposite of negative is positive. So negative fragility is not, uh, you know, uh,
0: nothing. The opposite would be something that gains from disorder, okay? At Strong Towns, our mission statement talks about cities growing strong and resilient. That was an intellectual compromise on my part. Really, I wanted it to be, I want cities to grow to create systems that are anti-fragile, systems that gain from disorder. And it's really important to understand the difference. Something that is resilient, and this gets into his coffee cup thing a little bit, something that is resilient can withstand negative action towards it. So the, the coffee cup has a certain ability. It's resilient to certain types of stress. You can drop a coffee cup a couple inches, maybe a couple feet, And depending on the surface it lands on, it's not going to break. It's resilient from that. But once you stress it to a certain point, the coffee cup is going to break. It's going to fall apart and become many pieces, and then it's going to be worthless, right? So the coffee cup has a certain amount of resiliency. And when we look at how fragile cities are today, particularly financially, it's something people can really grasp very quickly that, oh, okay, you don't want us to be so fragile. You want us to be a little more resilient, a little more robust. But actually, what we at Strong Towns are trying to do is create systems that make cities anti-fragile, the opposite of fragile. In other words, cities where they become stronger when they are subjected to stress, when they're subjected to stressors. When they undergo stress and strain, they actually improve themselves and become stronger. Let me give you a little bit of Nassim talking about that very concept. So, but that's the central
1: idea. What's the main difference between the organic and non-organic, between the engineered and non engineered This is a watch, okay? And this watch will never benefit from a random event. Do you agree? Okay, if you bang on it, it's not gonna get better. My bones get better if I bang on a table. Right, may break the table. You know, if you do too too much, you need a stronger table. Okay, over time. So there's a difference between the organic and the engineered. The organic communicates with its environment
0: via stressors and only via stressors. All right, the organic, which cities are at their best, at their finest, at the place that we need them to be, at their anti fragile, are organic. Creations. They are creations that exhibit those characteristics of natural organic systems. Those characteristics are complex systems emerge from a collection of interacting objects. Each interacting object experiences its own feedback and is free to adapt its strategy based on that experience. And so it is influenced by its environment. Now, pause there and think about that in terms of cities complex systems emerge they're not imposed they instead appear as if almost by magic it's an interaction between different objects we might understand some of them but we don't understand all of them and because there's all this independent feedback going on and interactions going on we get this massive layering of complexity And the system takes on essentially organic properties, properties that we find in nature. In a blog post I did last year called Complex Cities, I talked about this. In our way of going about business today, we understand because we've essentially made our systems non-complex, and I'll talk about that in a little bit. One of the things we've done with our cities is we've come up with these very simple formulas to govern how they're to grow and how they're to be developed. We go out and we build a highway. We put in a frontage road. We run sewer and water. We know exactly what's going to show up there, right? A very simple set of big box stores, strip malls, and drive through restaurants. We run sewer and water out to the edge of that. We know what's going to show up there, right? A housing subdivision with a bunch of cul-de-sacs and uh, houses with garages out front. We know what this is. We've created, out of this massive complexity, we've created these very simple formulas to, in a sense, make our system non-random, non-complex, and very orderly, and to the best that we can, very predictable. This isn't how cities react. This isn't how successful cities are built, and that's because cities are, at their essence, organic places. One of the examples that I've used in other places, you know, you have this piece of land that is on, let's say, a highway interchange. And, uh, you know, our set of standards would say, well, that should become the big box store or the strip mall or what, what have you, because it's in this high visibility location, but it doesn't happen. Why? well, maybe the person who owns the land uh, isn't interested in that. Maybe they have some other plans. Maybe the person who owned the land planned to develop it as a big box store, but passed away. And the land is stuck in probate for decades. And maybe the family is fighting and can't figure it out. And maybe at the end of the day, the the rich cousin who lives in Aruba gets it. There's an infinite number of variables at play that we as governments, as we as public officials, as we as Strong Towns advocates don't get to control. And as engineers, as planners, as professionals, we go out and we design these systems and we expect certain outcomes. And we can often get them when we throw enough money out there. But what we are doing is we are building systems that are not only not organic, but actually very fragile the way systems become anti-fragile is when they're built organically and in concert with these continuous levels of stressors. Let me give you what I think is, and I got a double star next to it because I think this is the money quote from this entire presentation, where Nassim talks about the reason why organic systems and the development of systems organically is so important as opposed to the kind of top-down, inorganic, very orderly and simple processes that we use today.
1: Because you, your washing machine doesn't need, okay, variation, variability in the environment to get better. Okay? The economy needs it to clean up the, the, the junk, the bad stuff, the bad company, so people can fail early. And that's the property of a good complex system and a good organic bottom-up system, it should fail early, and frequently to clean up continuously, and that's how you probe uncertainty. Via you don't probe it via
0: planning; you probe it via experimentation. Okay, there's so much to break down and go through there, but let's start with this whole thing on the washing machine because he he uses this, and it's hilarious because I think part of why he does this is to be intentionally obtuse, right? I mean, he jokes that he wrote his last book so that the lazy people in the media couldn't critique it because he would make the titles incoherent so that he would know whether you had actually read it or not. Instead of just reading the uh, first couple paragraphs and the heading in each chapter, you actually have to read the chapter to find out what it's about. And he's got this one chapter, this one section called the washing machine is different than, and I want to say it's a mouse or a cat or something, some, some animal. And his basic point is that if you take a washing machine, which is an inorganic thing. It is a complicated machine that we have built. It is not a complex system. And so if you subject a washing machine to stress, it doesn't get better. It actually breaks. If you subject a washing machine to continuous stress, it will ultimately break down. It cannot respond to the stress that you are giving it. But if you have an organic system like a cat or a mouse or a person or a forest, when they are subject to stress, they can actually adapt and respond to it. And as long as the stress is not overwhelming, or as long as the stress does not wipe out too many of of whatever it is, whatever bounces back, whatever comes back from that, will be much stronger. In other words, the organic system has properties of anti fragility. Where the stress it is not fragile to, the stress actually makes it become stronger. When you look at this, he he brings up the economy and he's you know, he's gonna talk about the economy a lot more here as we go on. And I, I think there's some important parallels here. But his argument is that, look, a good economic system has all kinds of businesses being started all the time, all over the place, all kinds of different models, all kinds of different approaches. And what a good organic system does is to subject them to miles amount of stress continuously, So that the weak ones die, die out, and die out right away, die out really quickly before they can infect the system, before they can become things that we rely on, think too big to fail banks, before they become so big that they become essentially systematic problems. So a good organic system, the things going on fail early and they fail frequently. And this gets to the most important point about this. Remember when we talked about the frontage road? And that lot that wasn't being used, we had no way to project that. We had no way when we built that interchange and tried to create that new growth, or when we put in that new infrastructure in the frontage road, we had no way to predict exactly what would happen. We think we knew, and we can look back and see many, many examples where we were able to throw tons of money at different things and, and get certain results. But we didn't know. We didn't actually know what would happen because there's uncertainty, right? Right. When we build highways, we project out how much traffic is going to be there. We have a really bad track record of being able to do this. We're often too low. Uh, we're often too high. We're not very good at doing this. And the reason is because the amount of traffic is not something that responds linearly, but responds dynamically. And it doesn't respond dynamically to one or two different variables. It responds dynamically to an infinite number of variables. Who's got to go here on a certain day? What kind of business opens up over here? Who buys what property? What gets developed there? There are a whole bunch of different things, you know, in macro and micro things that, have, that affect how much someone's going to use that piece of infrastructure that we built. So what is the wisdom that Nassim says? How we should approach these things where we don't know what's going to happen. Modern engineers... Modern planners, modern economic development specialists, cities, approach these situations by doing a lot of planning. And in in this case, it's CYA, like cover your behind kind of planning, right? We talked to everybody. We lined everything up. We did the least dumb thing that we could figure out in a consensus place to do. If something goes bad, we can all point to everybody else and say, well, everybody else, you know, we all thought this was a good idea, right? But Nassim says, that's folly. That's folly. Don't do that. The way you probe uncertainty is by making small little bets, small degrees of experimentation by failing quickly and failing frequently and learning in a small scale what works and how to get to that next step. The next step can't be a huge leap. It's got to be a small little step because that's how we build systems that gain from disorder. That's how we build systems that become stronger when they're stressed instead of falling apart when they're stressed. People
1: mistake variability for risk mostly because we have uh, bad terminology. They're just the victims of the terminology, <laughs> you see. Risk is not variability, all right? Except, uh, I think it started in the econ departments and in decision science, and then people said, oh, well, let's control risk, therefore you control variability. You're not the, the only two are together in some class or some narrowly defined class of distribution. You control variance of so the Gaussian distribution, you lower tail risk automatically. They're two different animals. And effectively, if you eliminate variability from systems, they blow up.
0: A couple months ago, I wrote a piece on the blog about height limits. This was after a a number of different places. I used Sarasota, Florida as an example in the piece. But I actually was headed to Austin, Texas, and and had been in a number of different places where you saw this exact thing going on, where you had these monster buildings being built next to vacant lots, being built next to one-story strip malls. And my point was how huge of a market distortion this was. The pushback that I got from some people was, you know, you don't understand, height limits are... Communist or height limits are going to wreck our transit line plan or what have you. I didn't do a good job describing this perhaps, but uh, the point was completely missed on a, a lot of these detractors. And that is our current system today doesn't create any stressors in neighborhoods. In fact, it's designed to take all the stressors out of neighborhoods. It's designed to create neighborhoods with absolutely no friction and no stress. And because of that, these neighborhoods fail suddenly and all at once. Let me give you an example of this. We build a neighborhood today of single-family residential homes, right? And we look at that, and in our current codes, we anticipate that that neighborhood will always be single-family residential homes. There's no mechanism to bring it to anything else. And so it will be maintained in that way for as long as the people there want to maintain it that way. Maybe it's a really nice neighborhood. Maybe it's an affluent place. Maybe it lasts a long, long time. Maybe it's a generation. Maybe it's two generations. Maybe it's five generations. I don't know. Maybe there's a really, really nice places. But at some point, that building stock, that building style, that type of construction the maintenance of some of the buildings will start to decline. The people who live in there will have complex life situations that don't allow them maybe to properly maintain the place. All of the infinite number of variables in a place that comes into it will come to bear in this particular neighborhood. There's only one direction for these properties to go. It's down, right? There is no renewal mechanism. There is no natural renewal mechanism that will allow them to essentially go to the next level of maturity, have another level of investment be made in them. Because it's a single family home now. Maybe you can buy it and fix it up and have it be a little bit nicer single family home. But certainly by the time that neighborhood reaches the tipping point, where different properties are starting to go into decline, if there's nothing more you can do with that, people are not going to be induced to be able to buy anything in there and fix it up. And so what happens? These properties go through a a very predictable a a cycle that we see over and over again in auto-based post-World War II styles of development. They go through a predictable decline. And the way we react to that decline as a society, as cities, as collections of people in neighborhoods, is to impose regulations to keep that decline, you know, under the guise that we're going to keep that decline from, from happening. We're going to put in ordinances on renting. We're going to put ordinances requiring you to mow your yard or paint your fence or whatever whatever the specific thing in that community is. We're going to put those in place until they become laughable. Then we're going to ignore them. And decline just continues on and on because we don't have any type of natural renewal mechanism. What would a anti-fragile city do? When that housing subdivision went in, well, I think the first thing to understand is that the housing subdivision wouldn't go in, period, at a point where it needed to be subsidized by the public. And I don't mean a direct subsidy. I mean the backhanded subsidy. We put in all the utilities, we roll that into the mortgage, and then we give it to the public to maintain But there's not enough tax base there to maintain it, so the public needs more growth or or needs to somehow find the money to subsidize this if they're going to maintain it over the long term. The way that an anti-fragile city would build would say, all right, our speculators, the private market is going to go out and build in this location. Once it grows organically to the point where there's enough tax base to justify public streets, the public will start maintaining the streets. Once it grows to the point where it can justify water systems and sewer systems, water systems and sewer systems will be put in. And those costs will be borne by the public at that point, but it will be borne essentially out of profit with an approach that not tries to maximize profit, but is financially viable. There's enough tax base, enough users there to maintain it over the long term. The zoning codes would not be designed to protect the status quo or to put the neighborhood under glass. It would also not be designed to exploit the neighborhood. Thus, the floating height limitation I mentioned last October in that blog post, there would be a maximum that you would be able to do. Uh, You could rebuild, reconstruct, add on to these properties in a way that allowed them to incrementally grow up to the next stage. They would still need to be compatible with the neighborhood. We are looking out for the people that there we're not trying to exploit them, exploit what they have done. We're trying to create a, an anti-fragile community, one that goes through normal succession processes and has that strengthen the neighborhoods. And so you could go to the next level and if your property went into decline, there would be then a market of people who would be willing to buy a declining property because they could essentially invest in bringing it up to the next level and make a profitable transaction out of that. Now, the pushback I got was, well, you're imposing, Chuck, a whole bunch of transaction costs on a neighborhood. No, I'm not. You know what I'm doing? In an anti-fragile system, I'm buying insurance. I'm buying insurance against failure Because when we go out and we do the massively huge projects, no matter how smart we are, no matter how intelligent we are, no matter how well-planned we are, no matter how many PhDs we have on staff or master's degree programs we've taken, we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to happen. And so we pretend we do. We put all these projections together and all these analysis together, and we say, here's what's going to happen here, and here's what's going to happen there. We've been able to overcome a lot that because we've had a ton of money to throw out these situations. But now that we're short of money, how do we build systems that rejuvenate themselves? We don't do it in large leaps. We do it slowly and incrementally where our failures fail quickly and we don't create systems that have the appearance of stability, the lack of variability being mistaken for a lack of risk. We don't create systems that lack variability, but that have modest amounts of ongoing variability and stress so that they become stronger over time. Nassim says, you eliminate risk, you eliminate variability under the guise of eliminating risk, and all you've really done is covered up the risk, and eventually the system will blow up. This is what we see in city after city after city after city. And let me allow you to hear his story. If you don't know the punchline here, I think it'll get sucked in to a little degree. But if you think about it, maybe hit pause before he reveals the answer, you will get a sense of the way that we, in a gut reaction, look at risk and volatility within our communities today.
1: I'll tell them there are two countries, Two types of countries. One country uh, had 40 governments. The other country had only two governments of the same period. Which one is more stable? Actually, there are two countries on the right and one on the left. The one on the left was what? Which one is more stable? Most people said that the one that only had two governments was more stable. Which one of the countries that had 40 governments? it's not hard to guess, Italy, all right, it's still around last time, I, I'm going actually right now I have my suitcase, I'm going there, so I hope it's there, all right, still standing. All right. <laughs> Which country was on the right, the country that had few governments, hence was perceived by unanimously by the people I asked, mostly economists,
0: uh, unanimously as more stable? Syria. So the point here and the Syria-Italy example is a really good one, because you know if you go to Italy, and if you ever study Italian culture and Italian government, particularly post-World War II, I think Italy has had a different government. Uh, they've averaged one new government a year since World War II. this tremendous amount of volatility. Yet the structure of that country, the structure of that economy, is very, very stable. When we look at Syria, they've had two and actually, you know, the just one family, two different governments over that same period of time. And, you know, look at what's going on in Syria today. How does this relate to our cities and our neighborhoods and the idea that small is beautiful? Right now, we replace that volatility. We suppress that volatility. We do everything we can to create these homogeneous neighborhoods, these neighborhoods that have have a certain amount of outward perfection to them, right? And we build them, we, we construct them, we move people in, and then we walk away and we pretend That these are viable places, right? Uh, if we can just get enough growth in the other parts of the system, we can come back and maintain all this stuff, even if there isn't enough tax base there to maintain it. We'll try to fix the streets. When the thing starts to decline, we'll go in with our regulations and our regulatory approach and try to get it back to a semblance of what used to be there. What we find is that uh, over time, these places don't fare very well. You know, you can only keep that veneer of success on for so long, and then what happens? Things fail spectacularly. They fail all at once. And you get neighborhood by neighborhood by neighborhood start to go into rapid decline and failure. Because there's not been any underlying renewal process. There's been no underlying stress. So this is the problem,
1: right, over-intervention. If you in a system, you make it seem a lot more stable, but eventually it
0: collapses. So one of the problems we've experienced with our cities is not that we've kept them from failure, right? And don't mistake me. I'm I'm not arguing for mass failure of our cities. I don't want pain. I don't want suffering. I don't want cities to experience enormous amounts of stress and the people in them to experience failure. Exactly the opposite. Exactly the opposite, right? I want to condition them and help them to be strong and resilient so that they're not subject to failure you know, I'm a parent. I have two daughters. One is seven and one is 10 right now. And I think even more years ago, you know, we were looking, whenever I do something new and having kids is certainly new, I, I tend to read everything I can about it. And I read tons of, of parenting books. And as the kids have gotten older and in different phases, I've read tons of parenting books too. There's a parenting style that is derisively called the helicopter parent, the parent that Hovers over their child and keeps them free of essentially the consequences of their actions. They're there cleaning up their kids messes when they get in trouble, smoothing things over and essentially making life a little bit easier at the time for their children. I get this instinct. And I think all of us to a degree, you know, when we love our kids, we are always in this battle between being the helicopter parent and having the kids stub their toe and and learn that stubbing your toe hurts right we don't want the kid to put their hand on the stove as a way to learn that the stove is hot it would be nice if maybe they could be taught that or you know put their hand near the stove and feel the heat and be able to comprehend and understand that the stove is hot and so as parents there's a part of us that just naturally wants to run interference For our kids, that works great when they're two. (laughs) I've got a number of friends now who have kids and are going through this, and I think I've told them all: you can't love your kid enough at six months and at one year and at two years. You know, there's there's no amount of helicoptering or overbearing parentness that will screw them up. You you cannot love them too much. But when they get to be seven, and when they get to be ten you start to cross over at some point into a a realm where you have to start toughening them up a little bit. They have to essentially start feeling the consequences of their bad decisions. I'll give you an example. My daughter, Chloe, is a beautiful child, and I love her so much. She sometimes is forgetful. And she gets so wrapped up in what she's doing. I mean, she's a typical 10-year-old. I'm sure all 10-year-olds are like this. But she seems to have this maybe more than I would have expected. She'll forget just basic, basic things. And you know, it's in a way her responsibility to get herself ready for school in the morning. Everybody's busy. We help her out a little bit, but we expect her to get her bag packed and put stuff in there and Remember her homework and remember her books and remember the things she needs. And there are many, many times where we're halfway to school and all of a sudden Chloe panics. Oh my gosh, I forgot this. Or, oh my gosh, I forgot that. And she'll start crying and she'll have a, you know, a kind of a mini meltdown and be really upset. There have been days where I've gone back and I'll drop them off and I'll head home and I'll pick up whatever it is she needs and I'll bring it back and I'll try to help her out. But there have been other days where I've said, you know, uh, I don't have time today and maybe this one isn't such a big deal. Maybe she needs to kind of work through this. And I think it's probably going to be good for her to go and have to tell her teacher that she forgot it and, and have to deal with those consequences. Because if you don't go through that, if you don't deal with that, you're, you know, not going to learn or not going to experience that. And essentially she would, you know, potentially go off to college and, you know, be a forgetful person who didn't have the skills they needed to be able to look after themselves. That's a far cry from saying, you know, throw her out on a street by herself at age 10 and have her fend for self because it'll toughen her up, right? So what we're talking about with cities here is not throw them out on the street and let them fend for themselves, but a different question. How do we create systems that contain moderate amount of continuous stress that allows our blocks and our neighborhoods and by result, our cities to become anti-fragile, to become places where as they are stressed, they become stronger, not weaker. As they become stressed, they become better and more optimized and refined as opposed to fall apart. The way we go about doing this now is largely a kind of sad version of that helicopter parent, right? When cities have a difficult time, we sometimes drop in with our grant programs and our stimulus packages and what have you. We try to do the shovel-ready projects When I step back and I look at how fragile our neighborhoods are, how little tax base there is and how little wealth there is in these places compared to the overwhelming amount of liabilities, and I look at these programs to kind of juice things up a a little bit more at the local level, it frustrates me to no end because I see the helicopter parent not doing anything to toughen up their place, not doing anything to make it stronger, more robust, more resilient, or at best, anti-fragile. I see a system that is perpetuating the weakest components that it has. This gives us, in the short term, and there's a a strong psychological, sociological reason why we do this, it gives us that over-intervention, that illusion of stability, that illusion of success. Right now, unemployment is low, right? Housing is starting to come back. We're starting to see increased housing starts. If you measure success... The way that we have tended to measure success in the suburban experiment, things are starting to look pretty, they're starting to look a little bit better, right? But if you measure success on the balance sheet, if you measure success based on the level of fragility in our systems, we're far more fragile now than we were back in 2008. We've covered up and created the illusion of stability without actually toughening up our places without actually putting in systems that are going to make them stronger and make them grow stronger over time.
1: You are, you have economies of scale. We all know about it. Anybody who studied
0: anything in business school
1: has heard the word economies of scale. But then there's a logical fallacy right there they can observe. The first thing I realize, when, if you think dynamically, is when the professor is talking about the economies of scale, say, why on earth don't we have like two companies on planet Earth? I want
0: to include this cuz this was the conversation we had a few years ago when things got a little bit difficult. Not only here in Minnesota but in a number of states for different cities. The idea was, well, we just need to consolidate these things. Uh we need to have, you know, fewer counties, we need to have fewer cities. It makes way more sense for us to just have one entity out there plowing the roads, one entity out there maintaining the ditches, one entity out there in charge of the sewer and the water system and what have you. And and it gets right back to the same thing that Taleb is talking about. Yes, what we will do with a system like that is we will solve the problems today. There's no question at all that consolidating governments, making one bigger system, adding one huge tax that everybody pays into a little bit, and then divvying that up for roadways, for example, we can solve all the problems of today by doing that. There's no question that if our Problem that we're trying to face and that we're trying to solve is the one right in front of our face We can solve that one today by brute force the question that I want to ask And I think the more elegant thing to try to answer is how do we create systems that solve themselves? How do we create systems where the problems are? Manifest early at a point where they're relatively easy to take care of. Right now in Minnesota, we have this huge debate going on over transportation. Like most states in the union, we have this massive gap between what we need to spend to maintain our systems, what people are willing to spend, and what uh, we're actually projected to spend uh, or collect in revenue over the next two decades what we're expected to collect in revenue is a tiny, tiny fraction of what we actually need to keep everything running and make everything work. People, I think, are willing to pay a little bit more, but the amount they're willing to pay is nowhere near what it's gonna take to continue on our current course. Now, if your only concern is the problem we face today, the budget shortfall we face today, or even the budget shortfall we face over the next few years, A wholesale tax on gasoline, a a far more opaque tax than the opaque gas tax that we have today, is a just fine solution, right? It solves the problem. It gets you to tomorrow. It kicks the can down the road, and tomorrow's problem is somebody else. If you want a more anti-fragile solution, one that will actually get to the problem and help the problem kind of self-regulate, then what you want is something more like a mileage tax, right? And have that mileage tax actually tied to the segment where it's collected. Because then what will happen is, supply and demand, the market will actually tell you, this is a segment where we need to spend more money. This is a segment where we're spending way too much money. And the system will essentially regulate itself, or it will give you the cues that you need to make really intelligent decisions about where to invest your money. We opt for orderly but dumb systems as opposed to chaotic but smart systems. And Nassim would say, there's a reason why there's not just two companies in the world. Because more companies, more competition, if you get a system too big, it simply falls apart. That's why the whole notion of too big to fail banks is an English absurdity, uh, the way the language is written, right? Because nothing is too big to fail. I mean, it, if it's too big, it will fail. That's the lesson from Nasim Taleb. If it's too big, it is destined to fail. And if you're telling me that economically, it can't fail or we're all in a catastrophe then then we've got some huge problems right because the bigger it is the more the illusion of stability and the more likely that it's going to fail and fail spectacularly an elephant breaks
1: a leg if it falls from this right it falls from from this height an elephant breaks a leg a mouse as they say across the world. I, I teach in Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, they say it don't care, all right? <laughs> so really, so, so you realize that that scale, so you have something called this economy, and this we can measure. We can measure, uh, you take uh, uh, bridges, okay? Cost overruns, how you handle uncertainty, cost overruns per uh, size, same curve. Uh, what else? Uh, execution and markets, same curve. What else? Uh, dams, same thing. Project in the UK, 100 million uh, pound projects, okay, have 30% more cost overruns than 20 million pound projects, right? So you can measure all these things and effectively see why a political unit that's small has an advantage, okay, aside from robustness, has has even a financial advantage that's not taken into it just simply from the way they handle uh, uncertainty.
0: One of the biggest things that we have going on right now in this country in terms of cities is the transportation debate. And so many of you get upset with me when I talk about making projects more localized, trying to make cities anti-fragile, biting off smaller increments, because you come back and you say, well, Chuck, that's great, and I get it, and it's nice, and the tactical urbanism stuff is great, and yes, we need to focus on neighborhoods, but I want my huge light rail system, and it's a billion dollars. How am I going to get this huge billion-dollar system if I don't play this big national game, right? And my response is always, you you don't need that huge billion dollar, that huge billion dollar system is not what you think it is, right? Before you get that huge billion dollar system, you need a generation of the small investments, right? So that the billion dollar investment becomes the low risk, self-evident thing to do. I guarantee you today, the people of Seattle would go back and not have undertaken this huge experimental boring project that they tried where the the boring machine is now stuck underground with kind of sketchy prospects on whether it's going to be going again and whether the hundreds of millions of dollars they've actually spent on this thing so far and the hundreds of millions they have yet to spend are actually going to amount to anything except a big hole in the ground. We look at economies of scale in this country as being some wonderful cornucopia, some problem-solving kind of approach that makes us all healthier and stronger and better off. And the reality is the exact opposite. That extra money that you spend that I called insurance earlier, the little iterative amount that you spend because you're not biting off huge quantities of scale would be insurance. But it's less than what we statistically see as errors and cost overruns in the big, huge projects. And why is that? Because big, huge projects, a small amount of volatility, which you have to expect, right? A small amount of volatility creates enormous amounts of dislocation and enormous amounts of cascading failures in large systems and in large projects. Cities are organic systems. You don't optimize organic systems by making them inorganic. You don't get the most out of complexity by making things less complex and more just simply complicated. What you do is you create systems that are more fragile. And what we need to do as strong towns advocates is push for systems that build anti-fragility into our cities. So our cities are experiencing, on a continual, ongoing basis, low levels of stress. And those low levels of stress are designed to make the city stronger over time. This is the way cities were built. And I'm going to end this section, and we're going to come back and we're going to do more Nassim next week, but I'm going to end this section with that quote that I started with, because really, we were on our way to building very strong places. And we built very strong places for a long, long time. It is modernity, as he calls it. It is this top-down, centralized, massive suburban auto-oriented experiment, as I would call it, that has allowed us to essentially, for a while, shortchange complexity and given us this period of an illusion of stability the real
1: estate in paris when i was writing anti-fragile and i was completely ignorant of these things and i wondered where was the expensive real estate <laughs> and the expensive real estate turned out to be in neighborhoods that were villagey in looking you see and and then and then where you effectively had some kind of uh, life all right and you can look at it in terms of dimensionality namely the 5th 6th in paris Uh, the the Marais, for example, and all these areas that were completely spared by modernity, you see. So it tells you that we were on a process before modernity of building neighborhoods in a certain way.
0: Next time when we get back, next week, we're going to talk about why this was and why this is and why, when Nassim calls modernity, I call the suburban experiment, why it has shortchanged us and created places that uh, are, are not thriving and are not successful and, from a Strong Towns perspective, are incredibly fragile. So look forward to that next week. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in, and keep doing what you can to build Strong Towns. Take care.
1: They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story.
0: Chuck Morone this has been fascinating. Who made it today?
1: I like you. I like your vision of the of the world.
0: It helps to make eye contact with drivers so you know they see you. Good morning. Lovely day for a walk. Even when you're looking out for them, they may not be looking out for you. That's why you should always pay attention and never get distracted. Yeah, Mom. That means no cell phones. Right. No cell phones, no earbuds, no video games, and no horseplay. Walking serious business.